full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And then they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? We're going to skip to the 35th verse of chapter 7. What happens is uh, Stephen starts to give this pretty long speech. It's one of the longer speeches in the Bible. Um, and he starts to recount the story of Israel, and he basically zooms through a good chunk of the book of Genesis and gets us, and we're going to land in 35 to some of the events of Exodus, and I'm going to come back and pick some of the things up that we're passing by. But go to the 35th verse. This is the context. He's, he's coming to Moses, and what happens when Moses starts to try to, to care for his brethren in Egypt, who, and they reject him. Because he, they have seen him kill an Egyptian guard. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this, Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, and the images that you made to worship. And I'll send you an exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he'd seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. 
What of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that the scriptures would be open before us, and not just before us, but that they would penetrate into us, and our hearts would be split open before you. God, we pray that we ourselves would be transformed people, and we would be full of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do this because only you can do it. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you don't remember, Stephen uh, has been introduced in the narrative just before this as one of these seven what we will come to call deacons. They're not yet quite called deacons, but Stephen is one of these seven Greek-speaking Jews who is Come, he's come to prominence in the early church and has been set apart for leadership. And this is one of the only people, this is one of the only the seven people that we get more about. And he is carrying on not just in the ministry of service, but in this ministry, apparently, of teaching. Because he has, what's been going on, that people have tried to counteract his teaching. And these other Greek-speaking Jews cannot overcome him in this kind of verbal combat. So what they have to do to achieve the victory is to arrange a sham trial or to incite a mob into what looks like a trial. Because this isn't even really a real trial. And so what begins to happen is some of these other men start telling lies about Stephen and saying Stephen continues to teach false things, to blaspheme God, to speak against the law of Moses and the temple. Now that kind of maybe feels weird to us that they would throw that thing in there. Like, what does it matter if they speak against a temple? Uh, it's a building. Like, is the building's feelings going to be hurt? No, but the temple represents the presence of God. The temple is not just a building. In, in certain portions of Jewish thought, the temple is the center of the whole universe because it is the place where God's footstool. It is the place where God speaks as divine king. So when you speak against the temple, you speak against God. So they're, they're narrowing the charges here to something quite serious. 
And so they gather Stephen, these men, and they, they come around Stephen and they say, is this true? As if they're actually curious. And what they want to do is to silence him. And what follows is this extended speech or sermon where Stephen demonstrates that there is something fundamentally ridiculous about these charges. Because he doesn't defy the law. He doesn't mock Moses or the law. He is intimately acquainted with it. He doesn't speak as a foreigner. He doesn't speak as somebody who does not appreciate or attend to the voice of Scripture. He speaks as somebody who is close to the Scriptures. And and if you want to get a a really helpful overview of the big arc of the early parts of the Old Testament, Stephen's speech is really helpful. Because he starts with Abraham and he moves through so that you ha- understand the events that lead up to Moses. Now, he, he skips things. He, he breezes past Isaac and Jacob. He stops briefly to mention Joseph to explain how Israel winds up moving from Canaan all the way down into Egypt and why it even is that Moses needs to come onto the scene. But Stephen is a, a very clever and skilled speaker. And he is, in some sense, inviting these listeners to be on his side, demonstrating that he knows the law, cares about it, and loves it. But all along the way, he's laying the breadcrumbs to the point that he wants to make. And the point is that these men who are gathered around to silence him are doing what their ancestors have always done which is to reject the God of Israel. And the fruit of what he says is very clear. They're furious. They cannot handle this charge that he lays against them using their own scriptures, using his scriptures, because he himself is a Greek-speaking Jew. And they, they, what several commentators call it, they end up, it's a lynching. This is not real justice. There is no courtroom. They're so angry that they drag him out to the edge of the city. They take off their external garments. And they kill him via stoning. Now, martyr stories are going to follow from here. And martyrdom is, is incredibly important in both Acts and the rest of the New Testament, especially when you get to the book of Revelation, which we we talked about last year, the question of the martyrs is incredibly important. And and martyrdom really is is just witnessing. That's what the word martyr means from the Greek. It's just witness. But when we say martyr, we're referring to the people who are killed for that witness. And martyr stories... Following, following from here, continue to be important in the life of the church. We're telling the story of martyrs even after the scriptures is uh, doing something in our life together as a community where we are looking at the life of faithful people who are willing to say, I love Jesus more than I love my own life. And when we look in that and we listen to it and we see it and we hear it, something happens to us where we are called to that kind of life and faith. That's what martyr stories are doing for us. 
they are calling us to be like Stephen or to prepare to be like Stephen. Many of us, when you read or hear the story of martyrdom, which still happens today, people in this world today suffer and really die. Not they get names called at them, not, not they get lawsuits, but they actually die because they follow Jesus. And when you hear these stories, you are called to question yourself. Do I love Jesus like that? And, and if you're like me, who grew up reading these stories, I, I love history generally. I love church history. I've read a lot of martyr stories for a long time. And I often, my answer is no. I'm afraid that I don't. I'm afraid of that moment. And in that moment, in that fear that I do not love Jesus as I should, the, the testimony of their life and their death calls me to be like them. Now, we are reading Stephen's story, and Luke helpfully describes for us these attributes of what he is like. And it's really important to pay attention to the words that he uses, because we have some ideas or can have some ideas when we listen to or read a speech like this about what is required of us. We often think, I often think, if I am going to be a person on mission with Jesus, called in to conflict areas, places where there's real conflict between believers and non-believers, I need to be a person of high proficiency and competency. I need to have all the answers. I hear this from people all the time. I feel it from myself. I don't know if I want to put Jesus on the table with somebody because I don't know if they're going to ask me something that I don't have the answer to. It's an understandable and a normal hesitation and fear. But Luke does not emphasize in his description of Stephen that Stephen, the, the number one attribute about him, that distinguishes about him, is his competency. Now, it's very clear he's, he's a brilliant guy, he's well-spoken, he wins all the arguments, but the way that he's described is that he is full of power and grace. And he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of power and grace and wisdom, which comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason we are in Acts together is because I, I have felt the effects of a year and a half of pandemic time when we're just sort of all linking arms and trying to survive together and to get through things. And we're trying to come back to the book of Acts to help our hearts, our minds to remember what it is God has called us to do and to be as a church. And fundamentally what it means to be a part of the church and what it means, means to be a part of this church is to be on mission with Jesus. To be a part of the people who are going with God, sent out once into this valley. And we need to hear Luke's description and understand what we also should be desiring. I, and it can be tempting to look at the example of the martyrs, to look at the example of this martyr. And, and to retreat and to pull back and say, I don't know if I'm that kind of, I'm that kind of person. I'm not a man or a woman who can give this kind of speech, who can argue so eloquently. 
And, and what I want to adjust for you is the target. What you and I should listen to and look for and ask is, how might I be a person described this way? How might I be a person filled with power and grace and wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit? If your version of being on mission with Jesus, of following Jesus, does not include active relationship with the Holy Spirit, active renewal in the Holy Spirit, you are not living or experiencing what Luke is describing. Now, I'm not telling you what that experientially feels like. I'm not saying that every person needs to have a Pentecost experience where there's a wind that blows through the room and, and tongues of fire over your head or speaking in tongues. I don't see that prescribed anywhere in Scripture. What is continually highlighted is these early Christians, Stephen's dependence on the Holy Spirit. And, and for, for many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, maybe it simply begins with putting the Holy Spirit on the table with us. When we come to the scriptures in the morning, we have times of prayer with God. Maybe we need to just speak his name and ask God, Father, would you fill me again with your Holy Spirit? Because these early Christians clearly understand that the gift of the Spirit is given to all believers. And they constantly need a refilling. There's not a category of believer that they believe exists who does not have the Holy Spirit. That's not what we're talking about. But they believe in a constant reliance upon him. A constant dependence on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit fills us with Jesus' own power and grace and wisdom. You may not be the most brilliant speaker. You may not read very many books or be able to summarize vast stretches of the Old Testament at a single glance. That may not be you. But it still might be said of you by others who would come into contact with you. That person, I don't know what it is, but they are full of power and of grace and of wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's not about being the most competent person in the room. It is about being the most dependent person in the room. That is what it means to follow Jesus and to be this kind of person. And so we are meant to look at Stephen giving this speech and being called to say, do I stand on my own two feet? Am I known primarily for what's in my brain or comes out of my mouth? Or am I primarily known by a character and a life that reflects dependence on the Holy Spirit? That question needs to be on the table for me daily. Father, would you just once again, I know you're with me. Would you come again and fill me all the way to the top? Because I'm not going to make it through today without your help. Father, would you help me as I love and serve my neighbor, how I might know to be ready 
to speak with wisdom that comes from you. This is the kind of life that we are called to be shaped into. Now, when we come to the scriptures, if all we see are examples, then we are only swimming in the shallowest waters that the scriptures have for us. Because ultimately, if, if you are only looking for examples in the scripture, you will either, one, only see people that you can be like, that you're already pretty good at being like, or two, you will only feel the impossibility of being like them. And neither one of those places is a good place to be. Never challenged or completely overwhelmed. The scriptures, because they speak with God's own authority and power, are going to do something even deeper in your heart when you stop looking at the hero of the story and saying, fundamentally, that's who I am. We need to stop and examine who is giving the opposition to Stephen. What kind of person would object to the good things that Stephen is proclaiming? And the answer is, educated, religious, devoted people. All of these people who pick up the stones to crush Stephen know their Bible better than you and me. All of them believe that they are doing the will of God as they arrange the murder of a man who proclaims the name of Jesus. And you better not breeze past that fact and assume that they are entirely different from you and me. What is tempting when you read the Gospels, when you read the book of Acts, and you see the Pharisees, you see the Sadducees, you see the scribes, is you tend to think, those are the enemies over there, those are the bad guys, and I am not like the bad guys. And the truth is, you probably are. If you're a church person, and I would say, if you're a church person who ends up in a church like this, conservative theologically, reformed, the chances are, get higher that you are more like the Pharisees than you would like to be comfortable with. Because these are people who we have similarity to, care deeply about the scriptures, want to submit to them, are invested in the name of God and his reputation. Now, none of these people are probably like, you know what I care about most of my life? Power, and I want to murder anybody who gets in my way. None of them are probably going to say that because consciously they do not believe that. What they would consciously say about themselves is, I care most about, about the name of God, the glory of God, and the people of God. That's what I care most about. Now, it's pretty clear they also very much care about power. And that's why they're seeking to silence Stephen. But the scriptures are going to tell us this again and again and again, that it is incredibly easy to miss God appearing directly in front of you. 
and to revile and to rebuke and to repudiate and to put down what God himself is doing directly in front of your face. Stephen's whole message is exactly that. Abraham was chosen by God. Joseph was chosen by God. Joseph's brothers threw him in a hole. They couldn't understand what God was doing. Moses spoke for God. Was, was communicating as he says, the oracles passed on by angels. His face shone with glory. And Israel said, what we need is a golden calf. That's what we need. At the heart of every single religious person of every human ever is that moment. The God who thunders from the mountain is there right on the horizon, and I would prefer the golden calf. And if I need to use the language of religion to justify my rebellion, then so be it. And if you are like me, you have hundreds, thousands of moments where you have used the name of Jesus to turn away from what Jesus is doing. One of the most terrifying things that Scripture will tell you about yourself is you do not even understand your own motivations and heart. You are not competent to discern your own motives all the time. You will put good language on evil things. And, and you are two or three steps away from picking up a rock to throw it at Stephen just like these are. Hear me. The only way you can hear this is this way. The only other option is to say Jews are bad people who can't understand God. Racist anti-Semites do exactly that with texts like this. Because they'd rather say that than acknowledge the truth that all people do this. We are fundamentally humans inclined to miss what God does in our face. And so when we read Stephen's speech and we read what happens to him, we can't just say, I ought to be like Stephen. What we first ought to ask is, where have I been like these Pharisees? How am I right now in my life providing religious and spiritual cover for murderous intention and rebellion? Oh God, spare me from being in that crowd. I cannot assume that I am not. Would you please have mercy on me and reveal to me my own sin and save me from myself? Now, the, the ant, there is solution here that is in this same story. Luke will, will purposefully make Stephen look like Jesus in his death where he will do the, some of the same things and say some of the same things. But there's a moment at the end of his life where Stephen doesn't look like Jesus. He looks at Jesus. Where heaven is unveiled. 
And Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. Usually the Son of Man, as one commentator says, sits at the right hand of the Father, but here it's like Jesus stands up in witness to the veracity of Stephen's own witness. And Stephen has a clear vision of Jesus so that when the rocks fall on him, his, his thought turns away from himself. And he prays the same prayer that Jesus prayed. God, would you have mercy on these who kill me? The solution to our own sneaky allegiance to the rebellion of the Pharisees is this. That your gaze be fixed on Jesus. Not myself, not my own particular causes, my own particular allegiances, not my my personality, my reputation, None of those things. That my gaze be fixed on Jesus and my hands would be open to receive the great mercy of God. The first, the way out of joining the Pharisees' mob is to open your hands and to say, I cannot argue my way out of here. The only way out is the great mercy of Jesus. And what we find in Jesus is that he has more than enough mercy for you. Jesus looked at his executioners and those who would stone and murder his followers and would do so in the name of God and would say, even for you, I have mercy even for you. This morning, what I want you to hear is that God is calling you to be filled with his own life. He wants to fill you up with power and grace and wisdom with his own spirit. That's what he wants for you. And you are the kind of person, I am the kind of person that tries to squirrel away from him and do my own thing and put his name on it so I feel better about it. And God sees your rebellion in mine and puts in front of you not a strategy or a competency test or any of those things, but puts in front of you Jesus and say, this is what it's all about. Jesus. And if you want mercy, I have more than enough for you. Allow the scriptures to get up underneath the surface of your heart this morning. Would you ask God, where have I pursued agendas and causes in the name of God and not even questioned whether I have wandered from him? Where have I held grudges? Where have I launched rocks at other people? Where have I joined mobs to oppose this thing or that thing and never once asked if God, I was still on God's side? Would you listen and attend to the voice of the Spirit? And as God convicts us and as he moves us towards repentance which is the whole life of the Christian, as Martin Luther says. He has in the same hand all the mercy that you need and so much more. 
so that your whole life and mine might be filled with the divine life of God. Church, if we are meant to be this kind of church, a church on mission, moving into the valley to see the kingdom of Jesus transform this place, which is what we want. We have to be this kind of person, repentant, Jesus-focused, and full of his own life. Let us pray together and ask that God would continue to make us that kind of person, eyes fixed on Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you stand at the right hand of the Most High. You have all authority and power. And you have for us more than enough mercy. We confess to you that we easily become like one of the Pharisees. We easily adopt all kinds of causes and agendas. And even when we're right, we often pursue it in wrong ways to gratify our own flesh. We defend ourselves. We defend our own honor. We use theological language to launch crusades. And, and Father, we, we just confess to you, we don't even know when we've moved over the line of good and evil. We're just profoundly confused about ourselves many times. And we ask that you would help us. In the depths of our mistrust of ourselves, help us to trust you. Help us to see you and to trust you. God, I pray for, for those here today who have never truly seen you. Maybe you've been a church person for a long time, but have never had that moment where the veil is pulled back from their heart and they see you as you are. God, I pray that you would do that this morning miraculously by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do. And Father, that they would respond. That today would be the day where they bow the knee to you for who you are. And Father, we pray for those of us who have seen you, who easily slide back into sin, who easily do what the Israelites have done, our people, our spiritual fathers and mothers. Would you help us to remember them and to learn from them and to be quick to repent and respond to you? Help us all, Lord God, to be people marked by power and grace and wisdom that comes from only from your Holy Spirit. We don't want to be flashy or sharp or funny or cool. We want to be full of your Holy Spirit again and again. We thank you that you have more than enough for us, Lord God. Help us to trust, to believe, to follow all of our days. Amen.